0: Mr. Gozenko, are you suggesting that Soviet intelligence, in all the time that it's had since you defected, has not been able to trace you down, that they don't know exactly where you are and what you look like and where you live and what name you travel under and what your wife looks like and what your children look like and where they go It was
1: September of 1945 when Igor Gozenko, a Soviet cipher clerk stationed at the Soviet Union's embassy in Ottawa, gathered evidence that his country had been spying on its allies. Canada, Britain, and the United States. Convinced that he needed to expose this Soviet espionage, Gozenko secretly photocopied numerous classified documents. Armed with this evidence of a Soviet spy ring and a willingness to defect, Canadian authorities provided protection for Gozenko and his family, while they began to unravel the extent of Soviet espionage operations in Canada. This was just the beginning, an early revelation that triggered widespread anxiety and fear about Soviet agents operating in North America, penetrating deep into our societies. By the end of the 1940s, the Cold War was well underway and McCarthyism was being adopted in the United States. Campaigns against communism in Canada were less aggressive, but pressure on Canadian officials from American officials to strengthen security procedures was growing. A secret security panel was formed in an effort to remove security threats from civil service.
0: When I first joined the government of Canada, there was something called the purge of LGBT persons uh, that was in effect. From the 50s, 60s, 70s, and, and 80s, well, that was the policy of the government of Canada that if you were a member of the LGBT community, you were investigated and then fired from the government of Canada, in particular from the security services. And It was, it was something that was more common throughout the government until, the, I think, the, the mid-'80s. Uh, it stopped elsewhere other than the national security and intelligence and defence realm, and that continued way up until uh, the 1990s. Uh, so when I joined... It would have been impossible for me as an out gay man to work in national security and intelligence because my very existence would have been uh, investigated, found to be a security threat, and I would have been let go.
1: This is Cloak & Dagger, a podcast about OSINT, technology, and global conflict. I'm Kennedy Chapel. podcast is powered by Sapper Labs Group. For more information, visit www.sapperlabs.com.
0: Hi, my name is Arthur Wolczynski, and right now I'm a retired former senior official from the Government of Canada. I spent 30 years across a wide range of different organizations within the Government of Canada. I started my career on Parliament Hill as a political staffer, jumped into the public service uh, then moved over after the attacks of September 11th into national security. Before moving over to uh, uh, what was then uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, I was the Director General for Security and Intelligence. So I was the intelligence community focal point within uh, within global affairs. Then went on uh, to represent Canada as ambassador to to Norway. And just prior to retiring, I was uh, the Assistant Deputy Minister responsible for people, equity, diversity, and inclusion within CSE. Part of my background over the course of my career is personal and professional level uh, was around uh, respecting and engaging uh, diversity.
1: Most people can walk us through their CV in about 15 seconds, but it's this diverse background and experience that makes Arthur such a valuable voice, both in his professional and lived experience.
0: Uh, I happened to be a, a refugee to Canada. I came here when I was a little kid, uh, from uh, from communist Poland with my parents. My parents were Holocaust survivors. So I'm a member of the Jewish community, and I worked as uh, the uh, the first executive champion for the Jewish Public Servants Network in uh, in the federal government, so I was government wide. And I'm also the inaugural recipient of the Career Impact Award uh, for the LGBT Pride Network in in government because I also worked on LGBT issues for the length of my career. So it's been, it's been a long ride, and uh, now I'm I'm retired, uh, now I. Uh, I'm a senior fellow at the University of, of Ottawa, and I work as a, as a strategic advisor also for Samuel Associates from time to time to share my perspective.
1: On the topic of perspective, I'm clearly not your usual host, though you may have heard my name as the occasional producer of Cloak & Dagger. I'm also a podcaster and the director of communications at Sapro Labs Group. When MJ conducted this interview, the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion was mentioned early in the recording. DEI is more than a corporate platitude. As a gay woman, diversity, equity, and inclusion is what opens up seats at the table for me and people in my community to be leaders and decision makers. MJ passed the interview to me. There's a story here, he told me. A story that I think you'll want to hear and a story you may be better equipped for.
0: If you haven't heard about it, it's called The Fruit Machine, where the RCMP actually designed a machine that was uh, meant to uh, to test the physiological responses of, of potential members. And if you responded the wrong way, you were fired. So again, this happened all the way up until the 90s in the military uh, and in, in, in the RCMP, that if you, uh, if you were found to be a, a member, a, a gay man, a lesbian woman, goodbye. It was, it was something that, that, that existed fairly recently.
1: The fruit machine was a real machine, a device that was developed and used. But the fruit machine is also a colloquial sort of catch-all term for a government program, the LGBT purge, that used a combination of interviews, questionnaires, and pseudoscientific tests to identify individuals believed to be homosexual. These people would be subjected to intrusive questions about their orientation and personal life. They would be held in offices, secret locations, rooms without windows for hours at a time.
0: We were interrogated like prisoners of war. You know, we were thrown in the back of a car, driven to this close area, interrogated for hours and hours. My war was within the military, the Canadian Armed Forces. And I remember telling them in one of the interviews, I said, you can't do this. I said, this is Canada. And he looked me in the eye and he said, we're the military, we can do what we want.
1: They were shown explicit videos of the same sex to see if it would elicit a response, broadening their pupils. The program also involved covert surveillance of suspected individuals, including monitoring their social lives, their friendships, and personal relationships. If you're listening and picturing a man in a trench coat in the back of a bar with a camera pointed out of a newspaper with a hole cut through it, you would
0: actually be right. And this had a profound effect, I think, on members of the community uh, in, in actually wanting to join uh, uh, the uh, the security uh, uh, security services we were we weren't allowed until uh, until the uh, until again the mid nineties to do that openly, uh, and even after that you know it was a fairly hostile uh, and exclusionary environment. So you need to take action to try and address this. That's why for for, for me uh, it was always very important to be a, a an out gay man in national security and intelligence because too many people inside the system saw us as potential threats, so being a visible leader in the community was absolutely essential.
1: It did have a lasting and profound effect. If someone was found guilty, so to say, and identified as LGBT, or if they were just suspicious, there could be severe consequences, sometimes even criminal charges. People who wanted to defend and serve their country were made to feel subhuman cast aside after weeks, months, and years of dedication and service. What followed for some was a crime in and of itself. Awful stories of identified lesbians being raped by men in the civil service in an effort to change them. People thrown into conversion therapies. What followed for many was homelessness, addiction, and for others, death by suicide.
0: In 2018, uh, one of the things that for me was really important was to work with survivors of the LGBT per so one of the things that, that folks don't know is that many, uh, in particular, gay men uh, who were victims of the purge, number of them uh, committed suicide because of the the, the effects uh, of being thrown out uh, and being uh, being ostracized by by uh, by government and by by you know, military or, or police. Many of them died from HIV/AIDS because that was the era uh, that that uh, that had happened. So many of the survivors of the of the LGBT purge uh, today are actually uh, women. So I worked very closely with, uh, with the survivors of the LGBT purge and brought them back in to uh, CSE. We held, uh, we held a big event.
1: CSE, if you're unfamiliar, is the Communications Security Establishment.
0: Uh, where we had hundreds of individuals from across the, the, uh, uh, the National Security and Defense Enterprise to listen to what their lived experiences were. Because the first the first step in 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 encountering exclusion is to acknowledge that bad things happen, and then to uh, to give a space for the victims of, of of what happened to tell their stories. So this was an opportunity for these for these people to come in to a top secret environment to talk about their lived experience about losing their security clearance and then losing their jobs, the consequences that that had for them uh, for many many years, and that now to come back and to be told that this is now a safe space for you. This is some place where we want to learn from your lived experience. This is a place that has evolved and that is changing, uh, is something that has been, I think, really, really empowering for them, but also empowering and, and a real important learning experience for national security.
1: Efforts have been made to offer recognition and restitution. In 2017, Justin Trudeau delivered a historic apology to LGBTQ plus Canadians in the House of Commons.
0: The very thing Canadian officials feared blackmail of LGBTQ2 employees was happening, but it wasn't at the hand of our adversaries, it was at the hands of our own government. Mr. Speaker, the number one job of any government is to keep its citizens safe. And on this we have failed LGBTQ2 communities individuals time and time again. It is with shame and sorrow and deep regret for the things we have done that I stand here today and say we were wrong, we apologize, I am sorry, we are sorry. The only reason this got fixed was because some very, very brave people decided to take on the government. So people like Michelle Douglas, who is now the executive director of the LGBT Purge Fund.
1: The LGBT Purge Fund is a nonprofit that was set up to manage a portion of the funds that emerged from a class action settlement.
0: Who was investigated by military police and was, uh, was discharged from, uh, from, uh, from the Canadian military in the early 90s because she was a uh, lesbian. And so she brought a lawsuit that was only settled relatively recently so I think it was in 2017 when uh, when they settled the, the the lawsuit. It's not because the government all of a sudden decided, you know, it was it was fighting. Like it, it took it, it took advocacy and it took effort. That's one of the reasons why for those of us who were still on the inside, who were not affected by it, it was really important for us to use our positions of privilege uh, to, to give voice to these individuals who were very uh, much affected by the bad choices and our discriminatory policies of the government in the past to make sure that, that we learn from it, and that that moving forward, we would uh, create environments that uh, you know our people like us would feel safe and secure. And it's a work in progress. And you could take that 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 same kind of experience, that lived experience that I had in terms of a member of the LGBT community. Same thing applies in terms of of, of senses of exclusion from uh, for members of the Muslim community. Uh, for uh, you know, as, as the former executive champion of the of the the Jewish Public Servants Network. This isn't necessarily uh, specific to, uh, to national security, but across government, we heard about how members of the community felt that they had to hide their identity because of, 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 of uh, lived experiences with anti Semitism. So that's why this isn't just, you know, some people dismiss this as quote unquote wokeism. It's not. It really is about how do you make sure that, that, that human beings feel that they can contribute fully uh, to uh, the tasks that they're given without having to face an inordinate amount of discrimination, harassment, or, or exclusion. They, they just want to be treated like, like regular human beings.
1: And this is exactly it. When survivors of the LGBT purge speak about their experience, particularly those in the military, there's a common sentiment. I would have given my life. Men and women who would have given their lives for this country had theirs stolen because they were not viewed as normal or regular human beings.
0: We've got to learn from our mistakes, acknowledge those mistakes, and be deliberate in trying to redress them in a way that, that makes sure that all of us are, are contributing in an effective way uh, to, um, to the operations of our, our, our institutions.
1: Mistake may feel like a complex word in this context. Mistakes are made when someone makes a regrettable choice, when they do something misguided or wrong. Sometimes you feel your mistakes immediately. Sometimes, learning happens slowly, years or even decades later. It's important to note what the landscape was like, socially and politically, for an LGBTQ person in the 1950s. The decade was marked by significant social stigma, discrimination, and repression. Homosexuality was nothing more than a taboo. In many parts of the world, it was a mental illness, including in Canada. The Canadian Criminal Code criminalized, quote, gross indecency and buggery, to prosecute consensual sex acts between same-sex couples. People were forced to hide out of fear of more than just social rejection, but discrimination and violence. Psychiatric treatments and conversion therapies to cure people were highly endorsed, and there were no legal protections against discrimination based on sexual orientation, therefore no recourse. This overwhelming lack of acceptance and the lack of protections bred attitudes and beliefs about who these individuals were.
0: It was perceived that we were unreliable, that uh, because of our sexual orientation or our gender identity, that uh, we would be uh, more uh, likely to betray uh, the country, that we would be more likely to be subject to blackmail, Therefore, we should not be trusted with government uh, secrets or or quite frankly with, uh, you know, it's kind of ironic that even those in the Canadian military, um, you know, it's not that they had access to secrets even. It was just that they were they were operating in a in a in in an environment that uh, saw uh, minority uh, sexual minorities as 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 incompatible with service by virtue of their identity.
1: Just to restate the point. The reason gay men and women were seen as a security threat is because they were vulnerable to blackmail. And those who could be blackmailed by adversaries were too much of a risk to hold secure or confidential information.
0: So it, it took cultural change, but it also took cultural change mixed with litigation in order to change those uh, those attitudes. I think that, that if one looks back at who actually the traitors were in, in allied history, a lot of them were pretty, you know, just good old-fashioned, you know, Straight white boys. It's not a. Uh, it's not something that that I think is is rooted in in in, in evidence. Uh, and I think that it was based on, on on discriminatory practices. I mean, if you look at some of the most famous uh, persons within the security community, you know people like Alan Turing, right? So Alan Turing is the father of, of, of SIGINT. He's the one who helped break the Enigma code. He also was convicted of of, of sexual deviancy, was chemically castrated, and then committed suicide. Here is a person who, who, who you know, helped change the tide of World War II based on their excellence, but at the end of the day was, was hounded to death because of his sexual orientation and sexual identity.
1: Alan Turing was a mathematician, computer scientist, and codebreaker, often referred to as the father of computer science. Though posthumously celebrated for his work with the British Intelligence Service during World War II, Alan was arrested and convicted of gross indecency in 1952 for his relationship with another man. He was subjected to hormone therapy as an alternative to imprisonment and lost his security clearance, effectively ridding him of his ability to work. He died by suicide two years later.
0: And you know, it's it's something that many uh, current members of the intelligence community actually remember. So I was very uh, very lucky when I retired. Uh, GCHQ, uh, uh, the you know the British SIGINT agency, uh, gave me a a, a gift. Uh, and it's a, a, a framed print of a, of a photo of Alan Turing and, and, and to remember uh, the, the work that we had to do within uh, uh, intelligence to counter uh, homophobia in order to, again, uh, you know, commemorate uh, the kind of sacrifices that people like Alan Turing made and to ensure that moving forward, people that are as talented as Alan Turing were, who also happen to be, uh, uh, you know, either members of sexual minorities or, or, or gender minorities, that they feel that they can, uh, can contribute fully to, uh, to society. So were they assholes? Uh, I think in the, in the, in the context of their, uh, of their time, they probably wouldn't have been considered a- assholes at the time. They would have been, I think, within the mainstream. But uh, we're lucky that the mainstream has, has changed over time. And uh, the, the problem is, is that uh, too often security and intelligence tends to lag Uh, uh, broader societal trends. How the mainstream changes, how acceptance evolves over time,
1: can be a complex process. Cultural shifts, education, legislation, representation, and grassroots movements are all key components in driving behavioral and ideological change. Laws and policies play a significant role in shaping social attitudes. When governments pass anti discrimination laws or policies that promote inclusivity, a clear message is sent that certain behaviors or attitudes are unacceptable, that we have made a collective decision that enough is enough and the majority must follow. Even then, creating actionable change takes years and dedication to doing the actual work.
0: Uh, Before I left uh, CSE, one of the things that I worked on was a a broad framework on equity, diversity, and inclusion, which aimed to to try and, and, and help fix that problem so that the broader public knew that we were a welcoming organization that was aimed at, at addressing challenges of recruitment. Uh, as Canada becomes increasingly diverse, we need to be able to appeal to that broad diversity of Canadian citizens who are out there. And if they don't know about us or if our reputation is one as being like a particularly hostile place to work, that uh, negatively affects our ability to, uh, to hire folks. Uh, it also affects our ability to retain them once they come in. If all you do is focus on the recruitment aspect of, of, of diversity and inclusion, but once they get in, their lived experience is one that is of, of racism or, or, or homophobia or non-accommodation of their of their lived experience. They're going to leave, uh, and they're not going to they're not going to spend a whole lot of time there. And again, that that kind of churn affects our our, our operational effectiveness, but. Again, we're, we're, I think increasingly organizations like CSE have put in place specific strategies to address it. CSIS, not too long ago, I think it was only a couple of weeks ago, uh, issued their first framework for equity, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, the Canadian Armed Forces and the RCMP are also, I think, really working to try and address these challenges because they all face uh, challenges with recruitment and retention. And, and uh, if we want people to, to join, given the demographics of our of our country we need to be able to appeal to a broader uh, range of uh, of potential recruits and then make sure that once they get into the uh, to the uh, to the institutions that they actually feel that those institutions reflect them are responsive to them and that they could contribute fully uh, to their uh, their operations
1: we can hold this idea challenges with recruitment and retention as one of the clear and tangible costs of neglecting authentic DEI frameworks But the conversation is bigger than just the directly harmful impact that has on minority groups. Indigenous peoples, the LGBTQ2S plus community, folks with disabilities, black individuals, gender minorities, every underrepresented group and person is still a key stakeholder in how our nation and society functions. And when they're not reflected in government and public organizations, that narrow perspective becomes a massive disservice broadly but is also extremely detrimental to the information environment.
0: Why all of us, I think, have a collective responsibility to ensure that we, we don't backslide, that we uh, are as welcoming as we can, not because we're just, you know, sort of like sanctimonious, you know, you know, do-gooders, uh, but because it, it, it's actually the right thing to do. And it's also the most effective thing to do in terms of our operations. There's a cost in terms of the human uh, capital that's negatively affected, but there's also a, a cost and our ability to have that kind of broad spectrum of insight that is required to provide effective advice and guidance and analysis that without that broad diversity, I think, would be negatively uh, affected.
1: But I'm curious how Archer's identity has affected his own experience.
0: When I started my career, I was dumb uh, and I didn't actually understand the, uh, the potential consequences. So I, when I started in, in government, my first job in government was at health and, and, and welfare. Now, I just also just came out uh, not that long before. I remember I went to, uh, uh, to a, a, a restaurant here in, in Ottawa in the, in, in the market that was uh, known to be uh, you know, a hangout for members of the, of, the, of the gay community. And I ran into a colleague who absolutely lost his mind. This represented a real personal risk. For me, I didn't know that at the time that that, that was a real risk to me the three members of parliament and ministers that I worked for were all women and they were all trailblazers. And I think that they uh, understood the importance of being effective allies. So I benefited from that. So I'll, I'll, I'll speak to these issues. It happened relatively late. I mean, even when I was in, at, at foreign affairs, when I was the director general for security and intelligence at, at, at foreign affairs, Um, I was asked to be the the champion for the workplace charitable campaign, you know, the fundraising campaign. I gave a, a speech about, you know, in front of a big crowd, and I said, you know, as a gay man, I care about these issues, and that's why I think it's important to contribute. The number of people who messaged me after I made my speech and I talked about my personal life? I guess who said that I was one of the first people that they had ever heard in a public forum acknowledge that they were that they were gay. I wasn't the first; there was plenty of people before me, but they never talked about it. Uh, and so that's why it was really important to to create the space. You know, and again, I'm privileged. I was I was already a director general. For me, I didn't even see the risk at that point. But for others who were who still felt vulnerable, the ability to see someone who was visible, who's visibly different and who's willing to, to talk about it, I think helped create the space for them to feel safer. And again, it's all about people being able to feel safe so that they can do their job and not worry about all the other crap uh, that they might face because of, of people's uh, you know, prejudices and, and, uh, and assumptions.
1: By the time Archer was at a point in his career where speaking about his personal life had an impact, there was already a sense of safety and privilege. As he said, he didn't feel like there was much of a risk. When I started my career, I carried a certain amount of fear about how my sexuality and identity might impact me. The truth is, it hasn't, not really. But there is a big but there. I fall into a category of person that some in the LGBTQ plus community would call straight passing. I have the ability and the privilege of moving about my day without being visibly anything other than a standard white woman. The reality of visible or vocal minorities, however, is very different.
0: I will tell you that I have faced anti-Semitism. Uh, that 100%. That, uh, which is, you know, it's interesting, I'm, I'm going to be speaking at a school later on uh, the, uh, tomorrow, actually. Uh, uh, and I'll be talking about sort of intersectionality, how multiple forms of discrimination kind of play together. But when I, uh, when, absolutely, in terms of an- anti-Semitism, 100%, uh, where people make all kinds of, 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 of nasty assumptions and, and comments. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I've been referred to as you people uh, by, by, uh, by senior officials. Um, I've been, I've, I've had, uh, you know, anti-Semitic jokes told to my face. And then when I, when I tried to, to seek some kind of redress, was told by by other senior officials, can't you take a joke? And this is as recent as, you know, when I was ambassador to uh, to Norway. So I was already a pretty senior guy. And it happens regularly. It's one of the reasons why we created the Jewish Public Servants Network, because uh, there's so many uh, instances that still happen uh, around, uh, you know, things from like dual loyalty. Oh, you're a Jew. You must care about Israel more than you care about Canada. Um to, again, you people stick together. The only reason you got that job is because the deputy happens to be a member of that community. Uh, all of that has happened to me, and, and that uh, happened to me already when I was a fairly senior public servant. It's not, again, trivial or trite to say that, that people have an expectation that the government will be focused on it. It's my lived experience, and I'm a white guy, right? Like, I can hide. Uh, I don't have to tell anybody I'm gay. I don't have to tell anybody I'm, I'm Jewish, uh, so I can blend. But that 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 takes a, a a cost for for me, and I've had lots of conversations with with friends and colleagues who are either members of the Black community, who are Indigenous, who say, "You're lucky. At least you can hide. I can't." And I face these kinds of uh, this kinds of stuff all the time. And I think that government needs to do a far better job as do other institutions, and in recognizing that when people are trying to create a safe space for themselves, it's not for some like you know partisan a political agenda, but it's just because they want to be treated fairly and they want to contribute as, as their colleagues do without facing the same kind of graft, uh that unfortunately too many of us have had to face over the course of our career.
1: A path forward may not always seem clear. Reactive attempts to address systemic harm and the mistreatment of marginalized groups, well that leaves enormous space to misstep. Alongside a perceived lack of genuine intent and historical context, communities often feel burned by insufficient consultation. Breaking down barriers isn't mental gymnastics. It can be as simple as proper engagement. Traditionally, decision-makers have been straight, white males. Giving a voice to and empowering people outside of that norm is how we create a holistic and meaningful understanding that allows us to move forward.
0: How do you ensure that when you are talking to the broad spectrum of Canadian society, that you do that with an understanding of the lived experiences of that broad, uh, broad diversity of, of people. If your security and intelligence institutions are not reflective of the population that they're meant to serve, it is very difficult for that population to trust and engage with those institutions. And that is also a cost. So you know, I think moving forward, we have to recognize that there is a deliberate uh, challenge and attack to diversity and inclusion that some of it ha- is, is actually the importation of nasty politics that, are, that, that I think, in my opinion, originate south of the border, are very much US imports into Canada. Some of it is amplified for partisan reasons in Canada, which I think is, is unhealthy and, uh, and, and inappropriate. And, and we have to, again, uh, make sure that at the end of the day, as public institutions, and as institutions that are meant to provide insight and, and, uh, into, the, you know, into the reality that's out there, we need individuals who, who represent and are from that, that broad reality um, because it's again, it's the right thing to do and it's the uh, it's the most effective thing to do from an intelligent point of view as well.
1: In 2021, the LGBT Purge Fund released a report, Emerging from the Purge, the state of LGBTQI2S inclusion in the federal workplace and recommendations for improvement. The report was the product of a year-long study by subject matter experts who consulted with the Federal Public Service, the RCMP, and the Canadian Armed Forces to present key findings and make recommendations for improvement to support systemic change. A key sentiment I took away was this. There remains work to be done to turn positive intentions into practical and structural solutions that promote sustainable culture change and foster an inclusive workplace across the government. Though guarantees have been made on a governmental level, discrimination and debate still divides our country on the topic of inclusion. It's difficult to stand in front of a person or behind a microphone and ask people to care about your humanity. And that's not really the point here today. But in learning of this dark spot in Canadian history and hearing the personal experiences, I hope you would let the words slip over you and resonate. If you want to learn more about the LGBT Purge Fund, I've included a link in the show notes. I'd like to thank Archer Wolchinski for joining us to lend his insight and experience. As always, thanks to MJ Benias and to you, the listener, for being here. If you want to hear or see more content about OSINT, technology, and global conflict, visit sapperlabs.com. And if you happen to be hanging out in your local coffee shop today, just talk about us, loudly. You'll hear from us again soon.